You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2019 psychological horror film elevated horror film you tell me i'm not in charge here i just have a microphone the perfection i'll throw in a little cello music there just for fun Ooh, that'll 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 be good a little cello music to uh make everything sound perfect um this film like the title suggests is very obsessed with perfection and the consequences that uh, there are two reaching for almost a cult-like idea of perfection. Uh, this is a Lydia pick. This is definitely a Lydia pick. And I can hear your question marks raining down with how to categorize this film. And this was uh, a, the bulk of our conversation before we hit record today was, is this elevated horror? Is this horror at all? Is this what like a new horror is this just what people expect from horror now or is this uh just a thriller is it just a thriller and it became a very interesting conversation and of course horror as a genre is moving in very interesting places the past couple years so i really think that this was missed by a lot of horror fans for myself I thought it was just a drama. I didn't think it was a horror film at all, so I didn't pay much attention to the buzz that happened over two years ago when this film hit Netflix, where people were enjoying it quite a lot, and it was recommended in horror circles, but I thought it was just a drama film, so I had passed it by entirely. Unfortunately, because when if someone would have explained to me the way that I think of this is that it's got this funny games vibe which is embraced by horror fans it reminds me of a lot of dead ringers in some ways and you tell me that it's cronenbergian at all that i have some level of interest but it was never explained those ways to me and am i entirely off base by likening this to those sorts of films I would never say that you were really off base about anything when it comes to horror. You are a, a scholar of this shit as far as I'm concerned. But I think that this falls into a category that is hotly debated by horror nerds, aficionados, whatever they'd like to call themselves. Horror heads. I don't know if we're doing that. Like Maybe that's what we'd call them in a zine or something. But I think that this film is part of a trend in horror that really has been starting over the last 15 years in particular. But you can even find examples falling backwards right up until about the 2000s when there was uh, an immediate backlash to backlash, backslash? There was uh, a response to the more visceral, dismal, angry elements of horror that was coming out of the late 1990s uh, to include things like funny games, for example, and, and also the uh, renaissance of very gory horror 
that was coming into the early 2000s. Your your saws, your hostels, your uh, Serbian films. The shit that I dig as mana for life when it comes to horror movies. The stuff that <laughs> keeps my motor going. Yeah, uh, some French extreme stuff. Uh, you know, I've also kind of noticed that we've not really touched on any French extreme, so maybe we should change that one of these days. When horror got dark like that, people acted as though it was so different because they were used to fun, flippant, Reagan-era horror that was coming out of the 1980s and through the 1990s. There were some serious films, particularly stuff coming out of other countries. And of course, there were films like you had mentioned, like the stuff that Cronenberg was doing, uh, some of the stuff that some of the stuff that Clive Barker that had Clive Barker's name over the door and, and things like that. However, this was a cycle that we had seen before in the 1970s. So when things got dirty, when things got violent, when things got sleazy and messy, there's always a response to that. The response out of the early 2000s was to elevate, is the way that you could say it. A term that I dislike as much as I dislike torture porn, as a term, not a genre. Because I feel like it's reductive, and I feel as though it's trying to say that anything less than this elevated horror is puerile. And I think that people who only uh, subscribe to elevated horror are the kind of lot that I don't really throw myself in with. However, it's natural to want to do this. And when you leave the realm of the French extreme and when you leave the realm of torture porn, you get into things that were ghost stories and things like The Messenger and all of the uh, Ring uh, remakes and, and the Grudge remakes and all that kind of stuff, uh, Dark Water, Shudder. Then you get into early Blumhouse era stuff, which is still fairly steeped in horror. And then your full Blumhouse era with The Conjuring and Annabelle and all that kind of stuff that they've created. And then even within Blumhouse, they start to change things up within the last couple of years. The Invisible Man. That is a very serious take on a very dopey concept. They're like, what if a man was invisible? And we thought that the Kevin Bacon one was the most serious that you could possibly do the Invisible Man. And, you know, Blumhouse is like, hold my wine glass. Then, of course, we had films like The Witch and the films like Hereditary and Midsummer, And these types of films, the perfection sits with because it is essentially a drama that is taking horror elements, either a very dark, twisted tale, but I don't think that that works entirely in including it in horror, because if dark subject matter counts it as being a horror movie, then is every war movie a horror movie? That's pretty dark. War is, is a terrible subject. So it doesn't really work. But what if you would also include a darkness on a deeply individual human level and then make it kind of gory. And that's when you have films that occupy this space. Hereditary is quite gory. Midsummer has some pretty gory stuff in it. So does The Witch. So yeah, I've been rambling for a bit, but the point I think that I'm trying to make is this is just the direction of some horror of the times, because as you well know, for every movie like this that comes out, there's a fucking ton of horror movies that are much more comfortable occupying the non-elevated title. 
we had talked about some of these films that are the antithesis to this because I think that for affectionados of this elevated horror it's almost as if they want to erase the other horror that actually occupies the genre and has for much longer as if it's not being released or created and this is all that's really coming out in horror and which is some is simply not true and I, I hesitate to draw a line in the sand because I do enjoy this work. I do enjoy these films. Although there is that voice in the back of my head a lot of the time saying this isn't really quite horror. Uh, it's not what I want when I turn on a horror film. I want that. Uh, I want some sort of slasher, madman, way more gore. But then I look at these films and I think that part of what is making me decide that these are first and foremost thrillers or dramas is that if it wasn't for just that one scene or these two scenes or this one nightmarish thing you take a movie like black swan mm. it's really not horror there's some nightmarish sequences that put it into the realm of horror there's some scenes within the perfection that because of gore because you can have all of the psychological drama in a psychological drama it exists in both genres this one without those gory scenes sits very comfortably within a psychological drama so it's just if it weren't for one or two scenes it would be simply a psychological horror and it would still be very enjoyable to the horror fan very much so because we we can like other things you you remind me of that all of the time that's it we can we can like other things um, <laughs> yeah. it it sits very comfortably and i could see unfortunately though where the divide really becomes is outside of the horror genre if you take a fan of psychological dramas or thrillers and show them this it may be too much for them and that's why it has to live in horror same with something like hereditary or midsummer or uh, black swan even or mother uh, it's it's really not necessarily horror in my mind, but it's not suitable for anyone but a horror fan. So this is where this is where it has to live. Do you know what I was thinking about and why the elevated horror thing? I think kind of rubs. I think you and I are on the same page with how this rubs us, right? Not exactly the wrong way, but prickly. I think and. You and I are horror fans, right? And I think that there are two kinds of horror fans. I think you and I occupy the same type of horror fan. But there are types of horror fans who... Well, first of all, we all wallow in the counterculture of being a horror fan. We like to tell people dark things. We like to give people serial killer facts. We like to show somebody the most fucked up thing or talk about the most fucked up thing that they could possibly hear about. And and we like to watch people be uncomfortable with that thing. And we like to also say, everyone's like this and I'm like this. It's, it's, this, it's this distancing. It's almost as if to avoid rejection, we reject the others first. And some people are very happy in that space and can't move outside it or don't want to and understand that the mainstream will never accept the things that we like as anything other than puerile. Anything other than just garbage and we're sick for watching it or listening to it or enjoying it. 
and and we fucking kind of like it that way. And then there's other horror fans who also say that, who all say and think they believe the same thing, but they also secretly, or perhaps not so secretly, really want mainstream attention. This draws me to when everyone was saying What's-Her-Face from Hereditary should have gotten a Best Actress nod for her role. And I was like, why do you care if this movie gets an Oscar? Why do you care if this movie gets an Oscar? An Oscar? Do you not know what the fucking Oscars are? Yeah, a couple of horror movies or horror-adjacent movies you know, have gotten Oscars and Oscar nominations, but come on, do you think a fucking movie where a chick cuts her own head off with a piano wire is going to get an, I don't care how much screeching her lines, sorry, I don't like this movie, gang. Uh, I don't care how much screeching her lines that people think deserves a fucking Oscar, get a fucking clue. And you can't pretend that you don't give a fuck about what the mainstream thinks when you're like the most mainstream like acknowledgement of greatness and success in film is a fucking Academy Award and you think that this movie gets it and you're mad because it doesn't as opposed to like, of course it doesn't because it's too hardcore. I think that people like elevated horror because it's something that you can show to somebody and say, look, it's not stupid. It's not puerile. It's good. It's it's a drama. It has serious actors and serious things and people really like really trying and this is this has this has a statement and and this has a, a you know it's all of these things that they really want to like show to people who don't like horror movies to validate their own interest in it almost like they're trying to sell the genre back to themselves as see I'm not an idiot I don't just like garbage this is like where true beauty lies as opposed to like you know, trying to find beauty in Invasion of the Blood Farmers, you try to find beauty in things that are sort of set up to be a kind of a, a, a slow pitch for you to knock out of the park. And I think that's where this comes from. And I think that's where the divide comes from with this is horror, this is not horror. I don't believe in gatekeeping. So if you only like this type of horror movie, that's completely awesome. And I'm glad that you're enjoying the genre and thank you, but you're a badass. But I mean, I also think that that's where the divide is. I don't know. It's hard to delineate without picking a side because at the end of the day, we enjoy a lot of these films. And these, like you said, those people are still horror fans. If they don't like horror at all, except elevated horror, they're still a horror fan. Agreed. And it's okay to like certain elements. It's the same with musical genres. You can like certain, you can like gutter punk only and <laughs> not punk in general and you're still a fan of punk music like it you you can't really draw all of those lines but it feels like a line has been drawn or that they've annexed a different genre and included it in horror because it has no other home and the horror genre is this land of broken toys where it just has naturally been shoved in a way and it, they're not allowing like a gray area within genres like, sure, there's subgenres, and sure, there's slash genres, but there isn't really a good gray area where this can live. We, we deal with this in literature as well, and I often wonder if elevated horror isn't just the film industry response to what the book industry has gone through the past, say, 30 years or so, 20 years, with dark 
urban fantasy or magical realism and place of horror because horror doesn't really sell. It's got to be crime or it's a dark urban fantasy or it's a supernatural uh, drama or something like that where all of these things live in other genres but not horror because it doesn't sell. Horror doesn't sell. So even putting horror on some things precludes it from sales, attention, being taken seriously. I'm really glad that they're brave enough to stick the word horror on this because like I said before, it would be too horrific for fans of those genres. But it still smacks of marketability to me. I was going to say, you're very right about that. But I was going to then interject, fuck all that. What's this movie even about anyways, Lydia? This movie is about giving yourself space and time to be yourself and know yourself and understand your position within those around you and how they've been shaping your life, especially when caught in a cycle of abuse which you may not be able to see from the inside. It's always great to have to deal with a broken leg or nurse a mother at home outside of the circle that you've surrounded yourself by, especially if you've been within that same circle since you were very, very young. It pays to have time alone and feel grass under your feet and just get away from people regardless of how you think their influence is affecting you so that you can think really clearly. And this is just about thinking really clearly. I know that does not explain the movie at all, but that's the biggest takeaway. I've watched it twice now. And all I can think of is this movie wouldn't have happened without this woman having time away from that smothering cocoon that the perfection is. Let me ask you this, because this is a this is a Lydia pick, and I don't want to make any assumptions about you. Uh, I know you quite well, but I don't want to make any assumptions about you. But I would say 30 minutes into this film, I'm seeing a lot of distinctly not Lydia things happening in this particular story, so much so that I turned to my partner and I said to them, I don't understand why Lydia wanted to do this. And Cass goes, why? And I, and I said, it's too horny. It's too horny. Uh, and, and I don't, I, I, I don't know. So I'm curious, what was it about this film that made you turn it on and follow-up question? What made you not turn it off? And actually, like, I'm going to see this to the end. I'm going to give it a chance. It is similar to my reaction to two films. Black Swan. I could not look away. I love this. I love virtuosos. I love uh, women coming up within music or dance or film or writing, any sort of creative endeavor where it's really about your own God-given talent god or not whatever god but i i love those sorts of stories of somebody persevering and even athletics i can i could follow an athletic story as long as it wasn't like a team sport but solo athletics that sort of thing and that's what this is is an athletic of of your soul and your mind and your hand-eye coordination or whatever i specifically enjoy cellist so this story had some draw to me to begin with and 
what made me not turn it off is, and not because it was the exact same reaction, but I'd watched a film, one, it became a favorite film of mine, Alice Kills, where over halfway through the film, I was hating it, was going to turn it off, couldn't stand these people, couldn't stand the writing, couldn't stand the acting, couldn't stand the plot, couldn't stand anything about it. I did not relate to this person whatsoever. And then there is a bit of a, a twist. There is a switch that is flicked. And I think that even within about 20, 30 minutes of the perfection, I felt a switch coming. I felt that switch being flicked. I also wondered why so many other horror fans, like what made this horror? I wanted to see what made this horror and I hadn't seen it yet. I had seen a, a gorgeous Shanghai. I'd seen some hints of a disturbed psyche. I'd seen some cool cello music and wonderful virtuosos as far as cellists go. I'd seen some fairly realistic uh, Girl Meets Girl, which was refreshing in that it wasn't saccharine sweet. It wasn't super fucking plastic. It wasn't sex in the city. Two very, very real girls that it was nice to see this relationship blossoming, although it did feel kind of there's a, there's a, an undercurrent there that you can't quite put your finger on. And I liked that because I did not know where this movie was going. It was in, in so many ways, such a blind pick, but I also did go through the Royal Conservatory of Music for some time. And not that that's anything to do with the back off Institute or this kind of level of playing music whatsoever, but there are people that have gone through the Royal Conservatory that have achieved this. Um, my aunt is a violinist who spent time in a symphony orchestra, an adult orchestra, and it was nice to see that sort of progression in her, even though it's not on the same level as this, but a musical progression in somebody who is determined to learn on their own steam. Something is just a, an enlightening and, and wonderful story to begin with. Whether it's a little kid in piano lessons, uh, an adult woman suddenly deciding she wants to play for a symphony orchestra, or these two girls. So that was absolutely compelling to me. Very, very interesting. I watched this movie with Cassandra because they are a, a brilliant musician, primarily a flautist. Uh, the early days of our relationship was actually them. Uh, I would ask if they could play me something, and I would, and, and I, I, I was, I wasn't saying like, could you, could you uh, play me something, uh, 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 Beethoven's Requiem, <laughs> something like that. I was like. Could you play me the theme song to Legend of Zelda? Could you play me the theme song to Final Fantasy VI? You know, stuff like that. And uh, they would send me videos of them playing either on the flute. Uh, they're a fucking pianist. They can play berry sax. They can, like, it's, it seems like if you put an instrument in their hand, they can play it at a level of proficiency that I find very impressive. And... They performed uh, as a, a young teenager with adults at the NAC as uh, as their special uh, flautist and, and things like that. So when um, I know that they can play strings, uh, violin, I don't know if they could 
if they play cello, but I'm imagining that they could probably pick it up. So when I, I, I told you off mic and I'll repeat it now, it's three and a half minutes into this film when I, when I was really getting the vibe of, Oh, this woman has gone to Shanghai and here's this woman that she, who uh, this now grown woman that they uh, clearly was the same one that they passed in the hallway. And now they're this world renowned, uh, cellist. So, I turned off the movie and I said, Cassandra's going to want to watch this for a hundred percent because they love stories about this because they kind of live that life. So there was those elements that really kept me intrigued. Other than that, I had no fucking idea what this movie was about. Like none whatsoever. And to the point in which I, I was, I almost wanted to spoil it for myself because when we get to once the initial meeting is over uh, of these two women and there's this beautiful competition. I love like this whole opening sequence in which they're uh, or, or first act of the film. They, they put this into acts and uh, very beautifully as if it was um, music, as if it was you were watching a concert and they would show you how each one of these uh, parts of the concert were going to go. But that initial auditorium in Shanghai and, and it was just like this party and everyone was dressed to the nines and they were listening to cello music. I honestly was just like, I could watch a whole movie that's just this. This is just very pleasant. It's a very pleasant story. I could watch like these two women just fall in love with each other and that's just the two genius level cello players uh, falling in love. Fuck yeah, that's a good movie. And then when someone throws up yellow, I instantaneously, I'm like, oh yeah. And then I thought... Oh, it's a virus movie. This is going to be about these two cellists in Shanghai running away from a plague, perhaps zombies. And, and then when all the bug stuff happened, I, much like Lizzie, I was treating this all as if it was actually happening. It was only when Charlotte was just like, a uh, meat cleaver. I was like, all right, what's happening here? <laughs> like, why does she just have that? It's so tricky in that it lulls you into being like, you know what? I'm enjoying this Hallmark movie. I'm enjoying this. Like you said, it's opulent. It's uh, well acted. It's well shot. It's a beautiful story to begin with. And that's, you know, one thing about horror fans that some people tend to forget. We are film fans. So we like a well shot, written, acted, lit, scored film. It, and it is all mm -hmm. of those. And even if it was just a story of two girls running away from some Ebola virus or whatever, it would still be a, a pretty okay movie. Certainly wouldn't be horror. The meat cleaver changes all that. But then you get some avant-garde tactics here as well because we get rewound. Much like the one scene often talked about in funny games, Although something changes within Funny Games, nothing changes here. We've been thrown for a loop. The wool has been pulled over our eyes. The wool has been pulled over Lizzie's eyes. The, the wool has been pulled over everybody's eyes because this is first and foremost, a what it seems to be some sort of revenge, some sort of twisted psychological, very, very dark story because Charlotte has gone to meet Lizzie and see her play and rekindle a friendship with her former teachers from the back off institute where she was a star cellist until she had to go and take care of her ailing mother. 
short time, a year or something after her mother's death, she's decided to go and do this and inadvertently fell for Lizzie, perhaps maybe always was attracted to her. Uh, Lizzie definitely had Charlotte on a pedestal. So this is just primed for some sort of relationship. And all of that really does happen where the wool has been pulled over our eyes is that it wasn't that they went on this cross country bus tour on the week off that Lizzie has from performing to just see more of China. It was all a ploy to get Lizzie isolated, drugged, hallucinating, and then put into a position where cutting her own hand off seems to be a good idea. That's fucking warped. <laughs> what did you think of this? Like, I, I, there are some laughs to be had. I'm not big on horror comedy. We talked about that when we talked about Dead Snow. It's some dark humor here. When they're on this bus ride, uh, Charlotte has poisoned Lizzie with medication. She's hallucinating, throwing up, shitting. She has basically what seems like malaria. They had seen this guy throw up earlier in the movie and there was this buzz about some virus going around, some sort of Zika type thing, which makes you throw up and is very malaria-like um, with the, the vomiting and stuff. Not so much like what the pandemic that we've experienced the past few years, something a little more uh, visceral than that. And she starts to hallucinate bugs and she's going around the tour bus, trying to get off the tour bus, saying she's going to shit herself over and over. And she is shitting herself. She's like, they get off the tour bus. She has explosive diarrhea and explosive vomiting. So it's just so grotesque and so sad, but so funny because she's just pleading and saying she's going to shit herself. So seeing this very mm -hmm. quite proper cellist go from being on stage under bright lights to on the side of a road, crying that she's going to shit herself. I thought it was hilarious. Did you find some humor in the shitting? <laughs> no, I didn't, believe it or not. I That entire uh, sequence, I was, um, I was very uh, overwhelmed with the uh, compassion of the people on the bus. I felt like everyone on that bus, you know, because there's an easy way to play that scene in which everyone's like, ah, oh, crossing their fingers and they don't want to get sick, particularly in in uh, China where, the, like, it's, I mean, there's huge rolling areas in China where there's just nothing and we get to see these beautiful uh, areas. Uh, I don't know if it was filmed in China. Some of it looked kind of like Vancouver to me, but uh, at the same time, I don't know. But this bus going between uh, cities you know, they like everyone is so compassionate and there's an easy and the easy way to play that scene. They didn't go for that. And the only person that was being a dick about it was the bus driver. And even though people were scared, they offer water and there's happens to be a, a man on the bus that speaks a spot of English. And so he's able to translate and, and he's able to tell them like, you know, if you, because they get kicked off the bus, uh, I was surprised it took so long. I like, oh, like when she got back on the bus and sort of apologizing to everybody, I, I was like, oh man, like I didn't think that they were going to let her back on, honestly. Like, because I was put, I was like, if I was in that situation, I would not want that person on the bus. But they still, like, were so compassionate. And I loved that sequence so much and you know in china like I'm, I'm assuming these people came from shanghai it's a very dense populated 
metropolitan area and where masking is very common. You know, nowadays masking is common for us, but when this movie was released, that was masks. What are you talking about? Like, and so to see all this stuff now seems very poignant, but also to see the level of understanding, like they understand that this woman is sick. They understand that these are two foreigners in a foreign land and they're trying their best to help while also being realistic about, yeah, I don't want what you have. And I think that was like, it really did a good job of showing like the duality there. And so I was very overwhelmed with all of that. And like, but at the end of the day, I suppose listening to your take on it, that it was, that it was funny. Um, I was like, I, I suppose at the end of the day, like, it doesn't matter how, uh, how proper or prim everybody is. Everyone shits, everyone gets diarrhea. Everyone literally goes into a room a couple of times a day and does the grossest stuff that humans do. And then we just close, then we walk out of that room and then we act like we didn't just do that. <laughs> No, it is absolutely grotesque. And this is also the portion where on my first viewing, you're convinced that to a certain extent, this must be a virus movie. This is where it's going. One of them has gotten sick and quite rapidly as well. This is beyond hangover. She's throwing up bugs. It's disgusting. It is shot very well. It is very visceral. It is very gross. Uh, I'm susceptible to certain gross outs, but not with vomitus or excrement at all. So if they had been eating yucky food, I might have been grossed out. But this is, it doesn't work on a gross out level for me, but it can definitely work on a gross out level for many people. But virus movie is not where this movie goes at all. It does a really good job in this first act of, of making us think that's where it's going. But then we get the weird rewind scene and reveal of the, the drugging and the convincing, the rolling with the hallucinations where she throws up and her friend, her supposed friend, Charlotte, is like, oh my God, what the fuck is that? Because she's already been hallucinating bugs, it just drives a hallucination further on where she starts to believe there are bugs under her skin. So when Charlotte produces the meat cleaver, it almost goes unsaid that, yes, give me that meat cleaver. I need to chop my hand off to get the bugs out. It is so warped. And so well done. It gives people heebie-jeebies, I'm sure. I don't have really bug problems necessarily, but those with bug problems probably wouldn't be able to stomach too much more of this. And then we almost go into another genre entirely of purely psychological horror because that was all a ruse. For what reason, you ask? Well, the second act will answer a whole lot of that. The second act is what I would consider the most bizarre because you don't get a sense of how Charlotte gets away with this because the throwaway lines of, well, I talked to the authorities, but I took the pills and I cut my own hand off because I was under the influence of these pills. No one would really do anything. And Charlotte just like <laughs> went home. So why did you go back to the conservatory and just hang out and wait to get rejected? And then you're like, now I want my revenge. There also, the, the thing that I wasn't entirely convinced with until I figured out what this place was, was um, with one hand, and it was, it was the hand that Lizzie holds the bow with. 
and uh, Cassandra was pointing out to me, and I had seen this, I know I've seen this before, one-handed people are able to play the, the, the cello. So this idea that somebody who's a genius, a literal genius of playing this instrument doesn't have her bow hand anymore could somehow not play. I mean, even if she were to lose her hand, which manipulates the neck, and I'm sorry for any musicians out that are like, I'm not musically inclined. So you're going to have to deal with like my butchering of terms and stuff. But like, to say that she couldn't learn on the other side if she had lost the hand that like does the notes or to, that she couldn't just attach some kind of apparatus uh, to her uh, what's left of her arm that has a bow attached to it and manipulate it that way. I was just like, I don't see how this person can't play this instrument anymore. I feel like they can. They definitely can. And I mean, if it wasn't about her... It absolute 100% life calling to play cello, especially under the auspices of the Backoff Academy to be on the top, top level of players in the entire world. If it wasn't about that, she could just like pick up an auto harp and make music. She can still make music. As far as cello, she can definitely still make music because it is a very simple um, apparatus to attach a gimbal that is specific to using a bow for bowed instruments for any sort of amputee it it's definitely doable and she has a lot of arm there to work with so it probably wouldn't be as big of a learning curve psychologically there's be there'd be a big hump for her to get over i'm i'm sure of course she's very traumatized even when she returns to the back off institute to explain to them how she lost her arm and that she wants to remain and boy, does she have to explain that she wants to remain. Oh my gosh, it's it's actually kind of heart-wrenching, that whole sequence. But she definitely could. Cass is very right. And I had thought that as well. Like, why are they making this so difficult? Why can't she go and get some medical advice? Particularly since of the sort of insane way that this happened, right? That Charlotte did this to her, and they all know Charlotte, the head of this school, what's his name? Uh, Anton. Anton Backoff. Backoff, this Backoff Institute, uh, listeners, is, think Juilliard, but even more exclusive, even more hyper-specific. This is an, uh, a mansion f with dark woods and soft lighting and very opulent. It looks like they have all of 10 students, and this is like the most exclusive of exclusive clubs that you can get into. They offer scholarships. The teaching uh, the, the the teaching faculty is quite small. It's Backoff himself and two other men and a woman. I'm not sure. They never say that the, the uh, that woman is also a teacher, but she's there on some sort of capacity. She might be a teacher, I'm not sure. And as Lizzie's pointing out, like, well, I could teach, I could compose, like I'll scrub the fucking toilets, like all the things. And he basically is just like turning his back to, like literally turning his back to her and and like, well, no, you can't stay here anymore. We don't care that you got into a drug-induced state with a person that we introduced you to and then you cut your own arm off. Like they're not willing to concede or make any special, because I was like, if this was, why wouldn't they just like, we're going to teach you how to like 
This is the best cellist school in the world. We are going to teach you how to be just as an effective of a player as you were with two hands, with one hand. Even to the point in which like, we're gonna send you away to this apartment, but don't worry, we're gonna pay for everything. So it's like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to like send someone away and pay for their for their living expenses indefinitely, why can't they just stay in the, what's the difference? And so that I was having a really hard time understanding. And then in that moment when Lizzie realizes that her time there is over, she punches the the framed photo with Backoff and uh, Charlotte that's in like the hall of success, I suppose. Because this is very much, um, Lizzie and Charlotte were their star pupils. They are the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And all of the, the teachers there flaunt them as this massive uh, fucking success story. And Lizzie sort of gets that look on her face. There's a couple of times when people get like this, I'm evil now, or I'm going to do something dark look on their face where they go from looking kind of like a normal person to all the emotion sort of dripping out of their face as, uh, as if one were removing a mask. Charlotte does it when she pulls up the meat cleaver and she, you know what you have to do. And, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess she's evil now. I thought, I was like, oh, this is going to turn into like revenge or this is going to turn into a movie like like that where it's going to be like this buddy, bloody all-out brawl and Lizzie's going to kill Charlotte for what she did. That's, I definitely thought that's where this movie was going. I was wrong, gang. I was wrong. Or it was going to be a Lifetime movie, like, or it's going to be Million Dollar Baby, or it's going to be The Pianist, or something like that, where somebody, against all odds, becomes top of the class, and they try not to step on too many heads on their way up there because they were stepped on themselves, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it doesn't go there. It it does throw us for yet another loop. Loop-de-loops. This is what this movie does. But in the most gentle way. I think that a lot of what is driving them not only away from this is a top level cellist that has become an amputee that against all odds is going to continue playing and relearn how to play again or whatever is the final scene of the film because I think that this whole movie is born out of that final scene of the film which we'll we'll get to but that final scene of the film I think of course it can't happen if she does any of those things. And then it becomes a lifetime movie and it's not a horror movie at all. So we have to stay on task. We have to get to that final scene that makes this a horror movie. So she is about revenge. She's not about getting a really cool prosthetic. She's about revenge. She is going to go and find Charlotte and fucking break into her house with a taser and demand some satisfaction in the old fashioned way. I, I thought that she was literally gonna like crush her face with her boot or something like that in that scene. I was like, oh, is the movie over? Because this movie is breezy, gang. It's um, only 90 minutes, so they're not going to make you sit and wait too long for this. But what ends up happening is Lizzie beats up Charlotte and then stuffs her in the trunk of her car and brings her back to the conservative ship and... Not conservative ship. Is that what it is? It's a... It's a conservatory. It's a conservatory. A conservatory. And essentially, here's your star pupil back. Charlotte got away and now she's back. Can I join you now? Or can I come home? That's all Lizzie wants to do. It's like, I want to come home. And Charlotte wakes up 
and Anton is there. Like, don't you worry. You're safe. Everything is gonna be okay. And <laughs> we have the, we have this moment where Charlotte says that she did all of this to save Lizzie. And Anton sort of gets like nervously chuckles for what seems like 30 seconds. And then he stops chuckling lids and then he blinks slowly. And then when he opens his eyes again, oh shit, he's gone evil now. And then we get this, the true story of this place. And a lot of the dots are connected. This is very spoilery. If you want to watch this film, I would recommend stopping now. But, uh, and also, you know, just as, as, a, a, as a little bit of an aside, there is a talk of uh, sexual assault in this film. So when we go back in time, we have this very tense scene with Anton who brings in these other teachers who just seem like very affable, nerdy, like cello teachers to me. I was just like, yeah, that looks like somebody who like, like they're like, oh, holding their hands and mm, music. And I just love it so much. Uh, there's this very special room that is uh, evidently the, the most perfect acoustically as humanly possible. In order to play in that room, you need to go through a bit of a ritual. You need to be the very best in the school. You need to get a tattoo with a little music note. I don't know why that's part of it, but it is. I guess it's uh, it's a branding of such. It's definitely a branding, and we're going into Nexium cult territory. It's a little quarter note, and it's really at the beginning what clues Charlotte into her hunch was correct, and Lizzie needs to be saved because they both have this brand of the quarter note tattoo. You're right, very Nexium, and then. It's revealed what I was like, I know where this is going. Like the second that the second she's like, I'm here to save her from you. I was like, oh, okay, I know what this is. And, and you know, all your hunches are correct because when you make a mistake, when you deliver anything less than perfection of you miss even a single note, you'll get screamed at, you get forced to repeat like these uh, slogans, the, these indoctrinating slogans about consequences, and the consequences are uh, gross old men will rape you repeatedly to teach you to do better at playing the cello. It's um, it's not graphic, although it's quite clear what is what is um happening, because a blurred out Anton walks towards her naked, completely naked. So you get you get the sense, and well, there's other people in the room, and so you're you're just you're just like, oh, so basically, this is just like a big rapey cult, and there's such why why lids is cults, why do cults? Nexium's a great example. Why do cults all lead to everyone has sex with the person who's in charge with, of the cult? Why is that always what the cult is? Because that is what is driving that Jim Jones style, even though Jim Jones wasn't a philanderer like this, but uh, it's what's driving the initial person that starts it. And 
there's a lot of other cults where I, I am convinced that even though we don't know, or it's not apparent that it's a sex cult, that it is a fucking sex cult. Like most of them are fucking sex cults. And so many of them are these polyamorous communistic type cults. And that's basically what this is with a shit ton of money. So he, Anton, makes the point that this is the way I learned. This is where I got where I am. This is where Jeffrey got where he is. This is where Theus, who's a, a man, if, if you're confused on the names, because Paloma is his wife or type person who also got there through this sort of behavior. So it's mm -hmm. not necessarily them victimizing young women. It is they are all victims. It's a huge cycle of, of mm -hmm. victims and abuse starting with i guess his grandfather or beyond because he has mentioned this is a family institute that has been passed down generation after generation it's his name on the door that's his father's name that's his grandfather's name and so this has been perpetuating for ages now there is no actual magic mentioned although it has magical overtones in the ritual qualities of what they do and the talk of, of god and the perfection and being next to god and the things that they have to say about them playing in this converted chapel that is like the most perfect place and it is a religious experience what they're experiencing here whether it be the sex abuse or the perfection itself the the yin and yang of that a horrible thing that the perfection really is that lives at the back off institute so it is like it is crazy and it is so very culty i am convinced that so many more cults that we would know are intrinsically sex cults because that is what lived at the heart of the person who began it and it's never just a fucking organic cult there's always somebody who begins it there's not many organic religions either there is somebody who begins it with some sort of be it megalomaniacal or uh, a messiah type instance there's somebody who begins this sort of preaching or this dogma or the rituals or whatever it seems to look or become organic or more pagan the longer it goes on this in particular though has, has got to be a one family sort of thing it is so it is so gross and it is so horrible in that she is deeply traumatized has blocked out so much of the abuse lizzie in turn had blocked out so much of the abuse you see those pictures on the wall how many more of those women have quarter note tattoos the young girl that they brought with them from china zhang li like is she destined for a quarter note tattoo as well like it is just so unsettling and done really right because like you said it's not graphic it's not uh overly unsettling in the way that they explain it and the way that they show what has been going on the idea is disturbing and unsettling for sure to varying degrees for various people as well but they do keep a sense of decorum as well and i think that if this was some back ollie downstairs hollywood music cult it would be a very different and much more gritty movie but because this is indeed elevated horror and indeed a super rich and super exclusive conservatory it does have a certain sense of decorum right so it is very picturesque it is very surreal in its unfolding of this angle of the story that the whole reason 
that Charlotte did what she did to Lizzie was to save her and open her eyes and hence, like my explanation for what this movie is even about anyway, give her that time, those three weeks, two days of which at least, spent on the side of the road nursing a fucking badly bandaged, severed hand alone, Mm -hmm. gave her lots of time to see really clearly or was hoping, I mean that was Charlotte's goal, was to give her time like she had had to distance herself from this cult and see what's really going on. It's extreme deprogramming, Wes. Yes, uh, deprogramming is the right word. And you can see the language used by Anton um, to talk about this is to play in this room is the carrot on the stick. It's this grand, amazing privilege and only the very best. And there is, because being uh, playing a musical instrument like this, uh you know there is a sense of personal accomplishment and competitiveness from a very young age when you're learning to play particularly at this level you're constantly going to recitals and competitions and get trying to get those recognitions you have parents that are pressuring you for perfection i can't imagine the uh i kept thinking about the the three young girls uh, in Shanghai who are competing for this privilege, privilege, quote unquote, to get a full room in scholarship at the most exclusive and amazing musical institute in the world. I I was convinced when those other two girls get home, they are going to get beat the fuck up because that is that is the goal you want excellence out of your children you want perfection especially in these hyper competitive i had a very lackadaisical uh bringing my i came from a household of just do your best just do your best you tried you tried so uh, i wasn't i was never in doc maybe that's why i I, like don't excel really at anything i just because i'm always like hey that's good enough i tried that's fine first draft one draft Put it out. It's fine. The this sort of psychological game that Anton is playing with himself, himself indoctrinated into this. He even says when he brings this young girl down as a sort of Charlotte is chained with golden chains to her seat in this uh, church, so she is to play cello. And if she even misses one note, if anything is flat, if anything is less than perfect, because. Anton views these cellists as vessels of God. And if any of that is imperfect, then he is going to punish this little girl who's like 13. She just got there and and Charlotte doesn't want to do this. And then even says, just do it to me and leave her out of this. When she inevitably misses a single note just towards the end, the camera tilts a little bit when that happens it's actually very beautifully done when that happens anton again just mind fucking her let's like oh it's past this girl's bedtime like why don't you go to sleep and and then he's like hey i'm not just some pervert you know like there's a like and he starts saying she doesn't she hasn't been chosen she doesn't have a tattoo she hasn't done all these things that gets you to be in this position and, and so he views that so twistedly, and so did everyone else. But because she 
did miss a note, she's going to be punished. And he says, like, you know, call me when she stops biting. And then it becomes very clear that, oh, it's not just all these these other two men are in the room to just watch, observe the punishment. Uh, they all get in on the punishment, as it were. And uh, that's when we find out that Lizzie has, plot twist, poisoned all of the people or at least these two men with the alcohol that she was serving. Now, we had thought at this point that this is, she's paying the price for having chopped Lizzie's hand off, isn't she? She is being made a spectacle of. She's seated in this chapel, converted to this oratory. She is being forced to play cello under the the, the warped situation, as you described, that Zhang Li may pay the price in her on her behalf and... Just a very warped mind twist, mind fuck, abusive, horrible place that she's landed herself back in, it seems, because she's now backward to the place that she had escaped from, chained to the chair, being forced to play music with the threat of rape hanging over her, which is just so deplorable. Theus and Jeffrey, yeah, very much in on this. Paloma is nowhere to be seen. She's elsewhere at the moment. Uh, but yeah, then we get that rewind reveal what had happened when Lizzie traveled to Charlotte's house the whole thing that had convinced Lizzie to not only was it the time alone to think and be away from the cult for a little bit to see things clearly it was the the one thing that Charlotte had said to her that he's raping you this is a a cult that you've been sucked into and they're lying to you and there's many more of you it's not just you you're not their golden girl and what they're doing isn't uh paying the price for perfection what they're doing is abuse and that had rung true with lizzie after a little while it's not a lie we were not lied to as viewers that charlotte went home to boston and abandoned lizzie on the side of the road in china that actually did happen we just lost that one little snippet of conversation just like at the beginning when we lost that one little snippet that Charlotte had poisoned Lizzie with those drugs. Just one little second that our backs were turned changed the whole trajectory of what we just saw. We were never lied to. We were just conveniently omitted one fact. And that fact is that Lizzie is on Charlotte's side. Sure, she tasered her. Sure, she had her boot on her face and almost crushed her head in. It uh, went a little different because that conversation they had after that point. So Lizzie dressed nicely in a suit ready to have a cello played for her by the bitch that cut her arm off is suddenly her counterpart and is going to free her from her chains after theus and jeffrey are dead on the floor they're going to stab paloma in the back hilariously and finally face anton uh, this this sequence is referred to as the duet and uh i loved that because it really showed that um I love that uh, in tandem we kill. It's so good. Um, the, the Paloma thing, uh, Cassandra <laughs> said to me, she, uh, Paloma like, staggers in and then basically fucking empties her bowels onto the fucking uh, floor and then drops forward, like gets put, poked over and then she's got a big ass knife in her back. <laughs> Cassandra said to me, Hey, look, Wes, like they actually did what you always want them to do. Show people voiding their bowels when they die. <laughs> because I have this, I have this 
adolescent habit. And I actually even did it moments before when the two uh, men died from poisoning. I make like a sound, which is in my mind, them just like shitting themselves as they die. Which is so much more realistic, really. When I toured, uh, maybe the first time that I toured the gallows, there's a huge stain on the concrete under where the gallows are, like a huge multi-layered bloom of all sorts of different things that had stained underneath the gallows and someone had pointed it out on the tour and me without thinking because I ought to think more often I said oh I wonder if that's where all of the piss and shit ended up when they voided themselves upon being hung and they looked at me aghast and it's like oh that's what happens man I know we didn't hang enough people for that to be that but maybe it is maybe it contributed to the stain under the gallows I'm no scientist yeah, I want my last meal, if I'm ever executed, to be like fucking Taco Bell and make a real show of it when I die. Well, luckily, Paloma is Paloma, and she probably had white wine. So it's not <laughs> too big of a mess, but it is kind of hilarious. And it is another moment where I had some laughs, because we're going to get a little surreal here. Not only are they going to blow this girl over with a feather, with this big butcher knife in her back, they're going to put on some fucking real music. I guess, according to them. To me, it's not music I like, but they put on real music. They're going to change into some fucking athleisure wear and have their hoodies and fucking yoga pants on ready for action. First of all, I forgot about the rap music. Fucking rocks. I love that shit. But, like, I forgot that, like, Charlotte, it was just like, and this was a wig the whole time. I was like, what? what? Like, and it was supposed to be like, see, she was so damaged by what happened. She had to go through like shock therapy. And I, <laughs> I was just like, why did you feel like you needed to wear a wig? Like, like you, you, she basically has a pixie cut underneath. It's not like she was bald. So like, there's no way of just like, if I, if she showed up and she was wearing, and she had her hair cut short like that, I would just be, oh, she has her hair cut short. That's, I wouldn't even, Register, but she's like, here's the wig to make you think that I was okay this whole time. But the true, my true face has short hair. Fuck, that was funny. But what isn't funny is this fight because they, I really wish that they showed more at a wider angle. I really kind of wanted it to be like Crimson Peak, like Butcher Knife, Big bloody visceral fight like these two women essentially enacting their revenge on this guy by like attacking him from all sides and they all get fucked up but i will tell you they kind of make up for it because holy shit is that arm stab fucking gross <laughs> the arm stab is i think it owes itself to so many years of really great special effects and horror films and war films as well because it is so realistic it is so gut-wrenchingly gross and so visceral if i dislike people getting their achilles tendon cuts because i can feel that every fucking millimeter of that wound i can feel this i can feel as well and of course it's that double whammy she's a musician this is her keying hand. This is her hand where she makes the notes on the fret. This is her fret hand. I don't know what you call it exactly, but yeah. Uh, it, she is stabbed from her wrist 
through right the knife goes right through her arm and then is dragged down almost to her elbow un fucking believable the pain would have been blinding i i don't even know how she didn't just pass out right there oh my god and die of blood loss because the amount of blood pouring out of that would have just been fucking insane do you think she would have lost the arm there was a part of me that was just like i i don't know if you would have lost your arm from that level of damage it's significant but like it seemed to be like the knife went through the two bones in our forearms and cut all the way down the center. So I would I was just curious if she would seriously lose her arm because when it happened, I I acknowledge that it was a grievous injury, but at the end when you see that she is now missing her other arm, I didn't imagine that that would be the case. Now, it could be one of two things. That yes, indeed, because it's not a scalpel, it's a butcher knife. Uh uh made so much damage going through, so much damage that they needed to amputate. Mm-hmm. Or because they are lovers they're they're a couple if they felt you know i want to be without my arm to match your state in life that i like this is what i'll do to repay you for having had you chop your hand off i will remove my arm perhaps that's it yeah i could see that this leads to a very bizarre ending I feel like I'm fucking watching some weird, like, shit that you would find in, like, Dr. Satan's tunnels. I, you end up, they don't kill Anton. They talk about castrating him, which I think is very appropriate. And they, you end up, and we've seen this before in revenge flicks where uh, the, the person who getting their revenge on is essentially just become a harmless doll because this person now has, uh, Anton has no arms, no legs. He's just wearing a little like diaper wrap thing. I'm, I'm sure they must have castrated him and they've blinded him. And now he's sitting with a tourniquet all sewed up. Like it seems like Charlotte has the knowledge to do this and Charlotte is missing one arm. Lizzie's missing the other and they're playing for him in this room with this perfect acoustics. Well, he sort of like is mesmerized like a, by the music. And so he can still hear it. And it's like almost like a pure experience of hearing the notes where I was like, this is twisted, but this also like, why wouldn't you just kill him? And also what about the others? Like, what's the explanation here? Like, where are the other students? Like, there there was like 10 other kids there. Um, all the teachers are dead. Like, there's no faculty. Like, what is happening? What is happening? Yeah, it's all, if you wanted to pass it off and stay in reality, but put it all in Anton's head, maybe this is his dying like, what's flashing before his eyes as he dies entirely. Maybe this is what his fate where he has had a self-reckoning in those few moments he had left to live and thought this is this is what I deserve this uh, plus a really nice concerto but I think that it it is it does get absolutely surreal because you're right where are the other students are are the, are the bodies still in that room are they not rotting 
Has no one come to check on these people? Where did she gain all this medical knowledge? But at the end of the day, it's about the end of the film. Whoever wrote mm-hmm. this, the people that wrote this, the, the team that wrote this, um, I, I swear it was somebody woke up with this horrible vision in their head and then wrote backwards to fill in what the story would be to get you to this moment. What would it mm-hmm. take to have two freshly amputated women have to come together as lovers and be able to play this wonderful piece on a cello to a armless, legless, sightless, voiceless person who had caused in a roundabout way all of these injuries on them. So yeah, really surreal. Makes little sense, but it's very beautiful. I wish I could have heard what they were playing because we have an idea that they're playing that piece, the perfection, the the, the piece is what they're playing, I suppose. I would have liked to have heard it because instead we just get sort of a, a silent treatment during that scene. We don't get to hear it. The ending comes off to me as a Tales from the Crypt. Like it's not, you're not really meant to think about it beyond the fact of like, the shocking last page reveal. And then you move on to the next story and it's over. You don't really have to worry about it. It, it. it really is almost about this transformation into maybe the closest thing to this vessel of God would be the two best students merging into one entity. Uh, the Rebus uh, in alchemy as they refer to it as, uh, as and um, the um, maybe it's something like that, and then allowing Anton to bear witness to it. It's the allowing him to live part that I find the most bizarre. I, but at the same time, yeah, you don't need to think about it too strongly. It could just be as is a shocking twist little O. Henry story and that's what you're left with and it is that shocking image it is the self-decapitation and hereditary that was a film that's entire premise started with imagine if someone cut their own fucking head off and then they worked backwards from that this seems you're right like the exact same uh thing but uh very like i i don't know how i feel about the film as a whole I like, I like it, but I don't, but I, I, I remember like I was in this situation yesterday after I'd watched it and I told uh, my partner, I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to say about this. I don't really know how I feel about this. <laughs> um, and then of course it's me. So I end up talking for an hour and a half, but yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting pick. Very interesting pick. I'm glad that you enjoyed it for that much. And we could have a really good conversation about where it fits in horror and its filming techniques. You had mentioned that part where the camera kind of gets shook uh, for a second when they hit that wrong note, which really helps us because I would have known that note was wrong necessarily. And like any properly trained musician, if you hit a wrong note, you just keep playing. Most people won't know it's wrong. Most people won't be able to detect it's wrong. And if they do, they might think, oh, maybe it's supposed to sound wrong right there mm-hmm. we wouldn't have noticed so the camera does that little shutter that little jolt so we know it's wrong and of course anton's face but there's another scene that's almost like superheroish, where anton punches one of them out uh to shut them up at this one point yeah. and the screen turns red and instead <laughs> yeah. of like cut a smash cut to black it smash cuts to red and i'm like what a choice it's so subtle so subtle otherwise the film is fairly straightforward in its technique 
the rewinding and stuff is another tactic perhaps but other than that there's only those two real parts where they use a camera trick or an editing trick <laughs> i said out loud when that punch happened oh man imagine getting punched so hard you get punched to red you don't even get punched to black you got punched to red it seems very painful it seems worse it does seem worse it does seem worse i did a good job of that and of course, it's also the first time that he loses his temper. So, I mean, I guess he's seeing red at that point. They're all kind of seeing red at that point. So it works so very well. Other than that, it's just a very straightforward film that ends up with such a bizarre, such a bizarre ending and pretty visceral, pretty gross and pretty horrific. So it is one of the few of these elevated horror films where I am very comfortable with putting it in horror because it couldn't fit anywhere else. It's way too horrific as far as a drama or a thriller or a psychological drama. But yeah. What do we have coming up next for them, you ask? I I was I was gonna say, speaking of things I'm about to be seeing, what are we seeing next? We have slated the crazies. So we're mm. gonna take a hard right back into horror. And I had wanted to ask you, you, we had talked about doing the crazies and we had talked about doing the Romero crazies, the original, and I am a big fan of the remake. So can we talk about both of them coming up? Cause I've recently watched the original, the crazies, mm -hmm. and I, I, I just want to watch the remake. So if we can talk about both of them, I would be tickled. Well, I mean, uh, if, if it would tickle you, then it would tickle me. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. We can talk about both films in one. I think they're similar enough in most parts that uh, it's the same basic premise. So absolutely. I, I always, I'm just like, oh, we got to talk about the Romero one, obviously. I've seen both. So I, I, I'm quite content with talking about both. Yeah. I'd seen the remake when it first hit theaters. We had some press passes, so I got to see it then and I enjoyed it quite a lot more than I thought I would. And I've recently rewatched the original because they are both on Apple and you can find them on YouTube as well. So yeah, easy to find, easy to find. So yeah, looking forward to the crazies. So get, you know, maybe this wasn't very much a pandemic story with its very small mention of an illness at the beginning of the perfection. This movie is very, very different in that it does go straight into pandemic and, uh, what people are told and believe in fake news and um, the government having a plan that they're not letting anyone into, which is sort of the world that we had been thrust into with trying to understand how the anti-vax movement and the convoy people that had taken over our city for a while, where their thinking was coming from. So I thought it was a really fitting thing. So I don't know if we want to stay in pandemic land or if we're going to go into french extreme horror afterward so if you have any input let us know you can find us of course at splatterpictures.net and all over the internet hell yeah i'm Wes knight and i'm typical lydia and you've been listening to dead air